Welcome to episode two of Challenge CC's cycling podcast, Raring for Road. This week we have Owen Clifford, Paralympic gold medalist and multiple gold medalist at both the road and track events in the World Championships. He's also a lecturer in engineering at NUI Galway. Owen Clifford, how are you? Thanks very much, Richie, and uh, delighted to be here. So, uh, as a cyclist, how are you getting on during the, the lockdown and the pandemic? Uh, okay, I, I thought it would be... Um, Worse from a training point of view, I discovered uh, Zwift last year. I hadn't uh, even a turbo before that. I had bought one before, but I had thrown that out. I well, not thrown it. I given it away because I never used it. So uh, I suppose this time last year, I started uh, looking into a turbo again. I got a loan of an old one, and uh, yeah, I actually got kind of fit again actually during the, the lockdown. And um, I suppose it's you know, as for most people, like most cyclists, you, you prefer to be cycling outside and doing kind of nice long loops, etc. But it hasn't been too bad from a cycling point of view. And what's made uh, Zwift bearable for you? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should be saying this, but sometimes I'm uh, in work meetings when I'm on it. Uh, could be, you know, watching a, a, something on Netflix or whatever that um, I wouldn't ordinarily get the chance to. Or just listen to podcasts, actually, you know, can interesting podcasts, things like that can make the hour go quickly or half hour. And in fairness, it's kind of, when you don't have much time, it's... Um, it's a good way to get in a decent bit of training, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get in. Yeah, it's, it's like going out, it's like a woman getting dressed to go out or something, getting ready to go cycling. There's so much gear to put on, like it takes about an hour before yeah, you actually yeah. get on the bike. Yeah, and yeah I see actually, I'm, I, I'm doing my um, turbo sessions outside because our, our house here isn't big enough for it. So if it's raining outside, and I, I get wet in the turbo. So. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, interesting. But still, it's, it's you know, you can get a... You can get a good session done in half an hour, you know, which is great. The missus isn't giving out to you with the floor covered in sweat and steam. No, 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 no. She's laughing at me outside. I see on Strav as well in, in Nakmakara zigzagging over and back. It's like a, a child's kind of colouring. Yeah, actually, I, I'll be honest, where I live is I, I live in the Kappa Road and um, our side at Clybourne Road in Nakmakara. And it's actually not too bad. There's... You can get in, you know, four or five hundred meters of climbing up and down a few hills in an hour. And and this time last year, it actually I hadn't been in good shape for about two years, and I got you know into pretty good shape in over March and April last year, just because of those little short efforts in the climbs. Yeah, it's handy. There's a bit of everything because you're right beside the country as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it's it's been it's not it hasn't been the worst place, I suppose, in terms of the the five k limits. You know, you can get onto enough roads to do a decent hour training. Yeah. Um, and and do you, would you cycle? You know these lads. You see them cycling three or four hours on Zwift. Have you have you been able to hold on for that long on a, a Zwift training ride? No, no. I, I've done one that was an hour and forty. That was one off, and then I the, the most after that is one hour. Um, the one hour and forty was going up a couple of mountains, so I said I'd, I'd wait till the end. But generally, an hour would be the maximum, and definitely nothing, anything more than two hours. I wouldn't even think about it. You couldn't pay me to do it, to be honest. I hear you. Yeah, and like, how did you get into cycling from an early age? Uh, I suppose I, I used to cycle in, out to school from an early age. Like it was, would have been about six or seven kilometers each way. You know, from primary school even. Um, back in the days where you could leave a kid, I suppose, cycling out to school, you, you probably uh, wouldn't leave them cycling out to school on their own now in that kind of area. But I was from a rural area in Limerick. Mm. And uh, I used to play like a lot of other sports, you know, rugby in particular, I would have been pretty decent at. And um, 
But I always loved cycling. I used to cycle to see my friends, you know, if they were 10, 15 kilometers away, even at the age of 12 or 13, I wouldn't have thought anything of cycling there. And I suppose I was always kind of a sport that I loved. And I really only got into it in my late teens, early 20s, you know, somewhat seriously. But like I would have been cycling all the time before that. And how did you get into club cycling and competing? Um, I, I moved over to Canada for a few months in, um, I, I don't know, the early 2000s. And I kind of uh, did a couple of um, triathlons over there and got into uh, cycling. I was a decent runner, actually, you know, um, because I suppose, uh, you know, I had that from from the rugby days. I would have been a decent runner. But um, I kind of, uh, I, I suppose, found that the cycling element I was pretty strong at, particularly, you know, it brings out, I suppose, my strengths, which would be in endurance in that area. So when I came back to Ireland, um, I moved to, I was in Galway and I joined um, uh, Galway Bay Cycling Club. And I suppose from there, yeah, I just got addicted to it, you could say. And I was, I was reading there on Sticky Bottle, I kind of quote from you, it says, my first, I remember my first race was in Navin. I was competing in the A1A2 race and finished pretty well in the bunch. I was surprised. Now, for a lot of us lads in A4 and A3, working ourselves, trying not to get dropped, kind of thinking... <laughs> To get to an A1, A2 race. Was that your first competitive cycling race? Yeah, no, that was my first ever race, yeah. <clears throat> it was uh, an A1, A2. I didn't really know what, what the level would be like, you know. Mm. I suppose I'd had, you know, you'd have some idea from training. Which, uh, I was pretty lucky, actually, in Galway Bay. You know, there was a really strong crew, guys who would race very high, you know, national, international level, like Nigel Frode, Frankie Barrett, um, Sean Dygan, Keith Griffin, a lot of guys there who had raced before me, you know. Plus a lot of strong guys who weren't racing. So I had you know, a reasonable idea, but, um, yeah, I, I, like I slotted into the bunch pretty okay. You know, obviously it was hard, like, you know, particularly moving around the bunch wouldn't have been used to that. Um, but like in terms of being able to stay in the bunch, that, that wasn't really a big problem. It just took a while to kind of learn how to actually move, move with the bunch. And then obviously to be able to get out the front of the bunch was a, another issue altogether. But you must have been very bunch. competitive in, in other sports then leading up to that, to be able to just, you know, get into cycling and make that transition so so naturally. Yeah, well, I, I would have been rowing. I started rowing when I was uh, went to college in in York Galway, and I would have been a good rower. Um, and particularly uh, an indoor rower, I had some problems in the outdoor um, rowing, even though I was rowing for the university because of the the disability I had. Mm. But on the indoor rower, I would <clears throat> would have been very strong and would have been stronger than a lot of guys who would have been racing, you know, nationally. Mm. and um, particularly over longer distances. So, like, rowing is a great sport that way. I suppose I was light anyway, you know, 68, 69 kilos, and kind of rowing really brings out the endurance aspect of you, you know. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wasn't going in, I suppose, you know, without any training beforehand. And you were, you were training with lads in Galway Bay, like, who were serious A1 cyclists, like, so you were bursting each other before you even got to the race. Yeah, yeah, and and also guys who would kind of you'd learn a lot from, you know, just seeing how they how they moved around, even on the, the club spins, etc. But also when I started racing, is that as well then seeing how some of the lads in the club were able to move around a bunch. Like you, you know, it, it's it's worth an awful lot to be able to, um, I suppose, conserve your energy and move up and down a bunch. People really underestimate that. I think they spend a lot of time, I suppose, looking at you know developing the power side of things, which of course is necessary. But if that, a lot of that is wasted at the back of the bunch, trying to stay in the bunch, then, you know, it, it doesn't go to, it's not much good. So I was very lucky. I think it was a great club, uh, very, a lot of really strong riders and guys who were willing to kind of, you know, share their knowledge as well, which was fantastic. And, and what was it that really 
made you dive, you know, fully into cycling that really gave you the the buzz for it? Um, I suppose I would have always been interested in it, obviously, because, you know, we were in the 80s and early 90s, I would have been aware of Sean Kelly, Stephen Roach competing. Mm. I suppose I loved the, the imagery around it, the, you know, the suffering, the kind of the images you'd see from Paris-Roubaix, lads caked in mud, going up mountains, um, you know, absolutely killing themselves. And I, I suppose, unlike rugby, what I really loved about it was you didn't depend on your teammates really for anything, you know. Now, maybe later on when you move up the ranks, you might a little bit more, but certainly when you're starting off, you you didn't. So it was really up to you. And I suppose that aspect of it really appealed to me. And uh, But I think there's an imagery around cycling as well that's really do- you don't see in any other sport, you know, the, the, the notion of going from place to place, tapping the, these mountains, the all weathers, etc. you know, and that kind of appealed to me. Mm. That's the one thing that I know myself now, compared to running, once you start cycling, the countryside just flies by. You see so much of the country, you know, mountains, you know, along by the sea, you can go down to play, you can go up as far as Mayo when you're back in the same, you know, in a few hours, like it's, uh, it really hooks you. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's kind of liberating that way, you know, you kind of feel when you get fit, you can, you feel you can go anywhere you want on your bike, you know. Yeah. And uh, you kind of, I suppose, you, you get to go along a lot of roads and see a lot of things that you'd never see in a car when you're out running as well, you know. It's, it's fantastic that way. Yeah. And tell me, after doing your first day one race, then where did it go from there? Um, like, I would have, I suppose, over the years, I would have... Um, Stayed at A1 level, you know, through picking up various points, you know, done all the, the races, Tour of Ulster, Ross Moon, Des Hamlin, um, uh, Tour of the North, you know, all the big races around the time. And I would have been, I, I, I would have been a, a good, you know, decent um, kind of A1 rider, you know, not a guy who could really win a whole lot of races, you know. I mean, I had obviously disability as well, which, you know, obviously would have hindered me quite significantly. But I was, I suppose, um, I, I kind of, I suppose I spent the, the years going through that. I wouldn't call it a routine because I enjoyed it, but I suppose, you know, really testing myself against the best guys, um, particularly in the stage racing, you know, I used to really, I really loved um, uh, that element. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose between kind of mid-2000s up to, you know, the mid-2010s, I would have spent those 10 years pretty much doing most of my racing in Ireland, I did do quite a bit of racing abroad. Um, just a friend I knew, a Norwegian guy that I knew who raced for a team over in Norway, invited me over as part of his team to do some um, stage racing over there, which I actually loved because uh, there were huge times there, you know, mm-hmm. 10, 11 kilometers and 9, 10%, which suited me down to the ground. This rolling territory in Ireland doesn't really suit suit me a whole lot. So that was a great outlet for me as well in, in, in terms of kind of racing, getting a chance to do some racing abroad. That must be an epic cycling in Norway. Like, but often kind of, you know, Google Norway and just the roads are just so good and the climbs, you know, going around fjords through tunnels, zigzagging up along the side of fjords. It must have been absolutely epic. Yeah, yeah, I was. It really was. I was even back there uh, two years ago doing um, uh, one of these long distance races they have over there, which is actually on the national calendar. It's uh, you know they have these really competitive long distance races over there, but I, I love racing over there. Um, I suppose one of the good things is that um, the weather is generally much better than here, but you do get that experience of kind of really long climbs. And also, yeah, as you said, the scenery on the west coast of Norway is just, you know, it's absolutely stunning around the fjords area. Yeah. So you're racing A1. Um, and But tell us about the, the 
disability and and how it affected your racing or when it when it it kind of creeped up on you um so i suppose i would have um as i said i was playing a lot of rugby when i was uh, a kid and i was playing with Brough um a club in limerick and actually we had a very strong club i, I don't think i'm wrong in saying that from uh under 12s to under 17s i don't remember losing a single match with the club um, no, that's not because of me, by the way, but um, <laughs> a lot of the lads went on to play for Munster, etc. you know, um, a hugely strong club. And um, but I and I was a good player. I used to play in the centre, um, but I noticed in my kind of mid-teens, I started losing a lot of pace, twisting my ankle, spraining my ankle a lot. I couldn't kind of twist and turn like, you know, you should be able to in a rugby match. So I said it to my mum and, you know, my parents and they, I suppose, my mum would have been a nurse, so she kind of was suspecting something was wrong. But there was one particular occasion we were walking in town in Limerick and uh, I couldn't keep up with her walking, you know, mm. and uh, she knew there was something wrong. So we went to see a, a neurologist in um, Cork and pretty soon I was diagnosed with a, a muscle wasting condition, which is uh, a form of muscular dystrophy. It's called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. So I suppose most people would would know now if they see me from the knee down, my legs would be very, you know, would be wasted. Whatever muscle is there doesn't work. It's It has no... Um, impact and from my elbows down as well my my hands the the muscles in my lower arms would also be wasting so for example things like um uh doing up my kids nappies you know i find very difficult to we'll say zips buttons tying laces uh you know even things like losing my grip now i find that kind of thing is is difficult so um i suppose for for cycling where i suppose obviously not having uh, effective calf muscles is, is a big problem cycling I suppose people don't think that the calves are used a lot but they're about 10% or 10-15% of the pedal stroke power but when you're sprinting that's a lot higher so in cycling really it hits me you know I mean certainly it, it causes me to lose a lot of power and I'm very inefficient on the bike um, but particularly sprinting my kind of sprint and one minute power will be very low for someone who's racing at um, able to race a kind of A2, A1 level you know so that would have been a big problem for me racing is, is to try and kind of get around that fact, you know. And I mean, it's, it sounds like from an early age, like you were driven and you were surrounded by competition. And I mean, did, did the disability then just drive you on further? Was it something that you were going to overcome? Like, because, you know, to be at that level of fitness, to be able to drop into an A1 race and, and, and to hold it, you know, is, is fairly spectacular. Yeah, it's hard to say. I kind of, I don't remember at the time, I suppose. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I kind of almost didn't believe it, you know. Mm. Uh, I knew there was something going on, but I didn't believe it. Um, and um, I suppose in a way, it, it, yeah, I, I, one of the things I think that was, I um, that kind of kept me driven was um, at the time I got diagnosed, I had contrary medical advice. So one one person was telling me that really, you know, you shouldn't continue doing sports to a high level because it might exacerbate things. Whereas I had other medical advice and thankfully my my parents as well who told me, listen, keep going, you know, do whatever you want to do. And I think that has really helped me. And I think part of the reason why I, I suppose I I suppose kept driving with it was because I always felt that um uh, that if I didn't, the, my condition would deteriorate far faster, you know, than it has. Mm. And and also there was it's hard, as you know, as you can imagine, like if you're, you know, into playing sports and into the competition, it, it was hard, it would have been hard just to give it up as a teenager, particularly, you know. And so the, uh, definitely, I, I never, it never even occurred to me to kind of stop, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And your parents were really crucial in that and kind of encouraging you on instead of trying to wrap you in cotton wool. Yeah, yeah. No, no, for sure. Um, 
uh, definitely they, they wouldn't have put any kind of barriers in my place. I wouldn't have said, you know, don't, don't try and do this or whatever. And I think that's crucial just, you know, in general for anyone with a disability, to be honest, is to, uh, the, the issue of mobility for anyone who has a, a physical disability is really important. And, you know, I would say that to anyone that, um, the more you can keep active, the more you can kind of move at whatever level you can. You don't have to obviously, you know, race A1 cycling or whatever, but it can have such a huge impact on your, your health overall. And, and to be honest, that goes for anyone, but particularly when you have a, a physical, you know, disability, it really makes a difference. And where did the opportunity then to, to race paracycling come? So um, the, the coach of um, the, the paracycling team is uh, Neil Delahaye, who actually was, I don't know if, if you would know him, but he would have been one of the strongest race riders in Ireland over a long period of time in the 2000s. And in fact, I, I never forget a stage he won in Ross Moon where he um, rode a break off his wheel into a headwind on Valencia Island and took the stage by about two minutes. It was phenomenal. But I I, I met him I, um, at a race, I, and I can't remember exactly where, in 2000, somewhere in 2014. And um, I mentioned to him, uh, or no, sorry, actually, no, excuse me. I met him through a project as an engineer that I was doing for a hand cyclist, Mark Rowan. And uh, Mark had been competing with Ireland in paracycling as a hand cyclist for a number of years. And uh, Cycling Ireland were looking at ways to kind of make the bike more efficient, you know, more aerodynamic. So they got in contact with me. And um, through that, I suppose, uh, I, I spoke to Mark and Neil. And I mentioned to Neil, you know, uh, he would have recognized me from the bunch, but I, I mentioned, like, I have this disability. And, and he kind of said, right. Uh, so that's interesting. And what, are you still racing A1? And I said, yeah. So within about a week or two, he had me on the Irish squad and uh, two weeks, about two or three weeks after that first happened, I was on a, on a plane going to the States to race the World Championships. So it, it happened literally that quickly. It was just almost overnight, you know. That's incredible. And you never thought of racing paracycling before that? I didn't know a whole lot about it. I did actually apply um, to uh, uh, Paralympics Ireland before that, um, a good few years before that, I, uh, but I didn't get anything uh, back from them at the time. Mm. And um, uh, I suppose I think that's something, in fairness to them, that they, they're definitely, you know, much more aware of nowadays is trying to uh, get people um, into it. But um, no, uh, I suppose I hadn't. I suppose I was happy enough, and it's a regret, a regret I have because I could have been racing it since the early 2000s, you know, and, and winning medals since then because... When I joined it, I suppose I was in my mid to late thirties, yeah. so I had probably gone past my peak, if you know what I mean. Um, but uh, still, though, for the, the period I was with them, it's, it was a fantastic opportunity to get. So you're what two weeks, and then you're on a plane to the US. Yeah, yeah, I almost didn't get in the plane actually because the at the border in Shannon Airport, um, they wouldn't accept. I had problems explaining to them why I was going and. Uh, uh, I, I almost, they almost um, didn't let me on the plane, to be honest. Really? But eventually, anyway, I got on the plane and um, flew over to Greenville in in North Carolina, and I had I'd never raced. Um, was it the US? The US customs basically wouldn't uh, accept. Yeah, your... I, I think it was the ESTA forms you have to do at the time. So I had filled out that, and it had been approved. But when they when I handed it in at the airport, and I've been to the US before that, they uh, didn't like the amount of details I'd given on the address. But I was flying over my own. The rest of the team had gone over, and I couldn't get in contact with them. So the, the guys in Shannon were saying, were, you know, the American uh, border guards were saying, you're, you're just not going on the flight. Mm. Eventually, anyway, they relented. 
Um, but uh, it was uh, I was I was thinking right, this is even this is going to end before it has begun, you know. <laughs> that was just, that must have been stressful, like. It was uh, it was stressful. And actually, I remember one okay. I was actually making a phone call, trying to ring um, Cycling Ireland to try and get a few more details from them for the border guards. And I was using my phone just back from the border kiosks, and one of the border guards came over to me and told me in no uncertain terms that I couldn't be using a phone anywhere next to or near them. Really? Pretty abruptly, you know. Anyway, yeah. it, it worked out in the end, but it was definitely a, an interesting start to the to my parasailing career. As I can imagine. And th- tell us about the US then. Oh yeah, I, I suppose I flew over there and um, met the rest of the squad. And um, I suppose just a couple of days later, I, I had a time tra- the time trial World Championships um, at the time. And I suppose the reason I was able to race was because Ireland had gained enough qualification points to have enough to have a certain amount of riders. And so then cycling, it's up to cycling Ireland to pick whichever riders would go. So in paracycling, I suppose a bit a bit the same for World Championships. Um, the, the country earns a certain amount of points and depending on the points you go, cycling earn and pick the rider. So you might have earned the points, but it doesn't mean you'd actually be going, if you know what I mean. So someone might have missed out because um, because they parachuted me in. But I, I borrowed, um, I didn't have a time trial bike. So I had to borrow it from um, Tony Burke, uh, who's in Galway Bay Cycling Club. I borrowed his bike and brought it over. And um, I, when I look at, see the images of me in, in, in that particular race, I was not at all aerodynamic. I mean, it was disgrace, disgraceful. But um, but anyway, I, I won it by 20 seconds at the time trial. But I mean, I, you know, I would have been strong. I would have been, mm-hmm. uh, like, time trial kind of efforts would have been, um, uh, would, you know, very good for me. So I won it over a Russian guy by about 20 seconds. And uh, I really didn't know what to think. I didn't know I should have been going there to win or was I just turning up to make up numbers or... I had no idea how good these guys were, you know, yeah. um, in my category. But the level that you were cycling at at home, like, was, you know, national standard. It was, but um, uh, for example, so in, in paracycling, you have um, uh, the cycling categories, you have five categories. So a C5 are the least disabled and they, and C1s are the most disabled. A C1 rider, for example, might have, like a Spanish guy, has one arm and one leg and he rides a normal bike like you or I do. Uh, pretty fast as well. It's uh, pretty amazing. I would have been C3, so my disability would be moderate. Mm. But in the C5 category, you had guys who were racing the Jacob Hurl Sun Tour, the Tour Down Under, but they might have a deformity with their arm or something. Mm. So these guys are racing with professional, you know, in professional races, fully professional races. And in, in my category, there would have been uh, two Belgian riders who were former pros who had um, various accidents. Mm. and uh couldn't ride pro anymore so um so basically i suppose to win in my to win in my category you have to be you have to be kind of a one so once you joined the irish squad were you subject then to anti-doping and all that kind of side of things yeah yeah actually we would have um obviously had to join the the whereabouts scheme um where you have to give your location every day um and within that you have to give one hour of the day where you will be in a, a precise spot that you can uh be tested mm. and so what happens basically is uh, you're tested randomly throughout the year a minimum of four blood samples four urine samples um every year but you'll obviously get tested in excess of that as well you know competition and other stuff those are the minimum number of out of competition tests so um yeah it was quite tricky just to balance that with work you know you have to you have to really plan ahead you you know if you say you're going to be in a certain place and they turn up and you're not there that's a strike if you get really? three of those it's it's a ban automatic ban um, 
you're a professional full-time cyclist, it's a lot easier to, uh, to know where you're going to be. But if you're trying to, I mean, you're lecturing, you're working, your family, all kinds of stuff, it's much more difficult then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was very tricky. And just to, I mean, I've actually an example um, of how, in fairness, how well the system operates in Ireland. Um, I had a lot of confidence in it, but uh, there was one particular, um, on a Thursday, I had to um, go back to Limerick at the last minute for on the Friday. So I changed my whereabouts form online and changed where my whereabouts to, to Limerick. So I arrived back in Limerick at, on the Friday evening at around eight o'clock and at nine o'clock there was a knock on the door. My mother had answered me and it was two people from anti-doping who arrived mm-hmm. to our house in the middle of rural Limerick. Landed down in Brough. And I, I'm not, I'm not certain why they test they tested, but it could have been because I changed that short notice. So they might have, oh, that kind of is a bit interesting. Let's uh, let's see what's <laughs> happening there. And uh, so they landed down. So you know, I, I think it's it's something so actually. Going I, I into the cup, it says these lads want you to to wee in that. Well, well, yeah, they they have to watch it coming out of you. I mean, it's Go they ahead. have to see it. I mean, it's there's no um there's no kind of hiding it in any way. They have to see the oh, whole. Did they thing. use a mirror or something or? A... No, no, no. They're they, they look down. At you. <laughs> they, they literally stand and, and you have to stand in such a way that they can see it and and they do it um you know but they're very nice it's very very professionally done i have to say yeah, yeah. Um, you don't get stage fright no but the first time <laughs> the first time something. i got tested uh they, they arrived at about eight o'clock one evening and they didn't get the urine sample till about three o'clock in the morning and they had to leave there you're not surprised so, someone looking at you trying to pee yeah yeah well it's like i kind of got used to it now one thing that's tricky is after a race obviously it can be tricky and you have to be careful not to drink too much because if you dilute the sample too much, they can't use it. You'll have to do it again. Yeah, um, yeah. The blood samples obviously are a lot easier. That can be done. But again, if they, for example, for the blood sample, I used to cycle to work and home. And once I cycled home from work, it's only like 10 minutes easy cycle, but they arrived just after I came home. But because I had been moving uh, before they came in, you know, exercising, uh, they had to wait. I think it was two hours before they could take the blood sample. Yeah. So it does, it does a lot in it. And um I have to say that the Irish system was, when I started talking to some of my competitors abroad, uh, I was, you know, I could see that the Irish system is a lot more stringent and, you know, applied yeah. in, you know, professionally compared to a lot of other countries, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's hope some of the other countries catch up on that. Yeah, yeah. I no mention the Russians. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they were actually uh, banned, but, but actually in, in, in the Paralympics, just before it kicked off, there was an Australian guy, um, like a Gallagher C5 athlete, um, very well-known guy who tested positive for EPO. Really? Um, so it's not just, uh, uh, you know, it's cross paracycling as well, unfortunately. Was there much support from, from paracycling Ireland? Was there like an elite sort of um, training camps or support from coaches? Yeah, no, it was it was a, a, a very professional setup. I have to say it was a complete change to... Um, what I was doing doing before, you know, I used to go out and just do a huge amount of mileage or whatever, but mm-hmm. now the training was very structured. I started doing the track as well around that time. They wanted me to do the track. So started doing a lot more gym work and um, learned, a, learned a huge amount about training, nutrition. We had um, Cycle Ireland have training camps and a house over in New York. We used to go there because there's a track there. Of course, we don't have a, a, a velodrome in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So I just spent a good bit of time training over there and traveling to World Cups, we had, you know, mechanics, uh, nutrition support, physio support. So, and, and being honest, even with all that, we, we um, uh, would be heavily underfunded compared to the bigger nations, you know. But I have to say the, um, the setup was excellent and um, 
really professional. You know, it was the same setup for us as it is for the um, it, for the the international riders. You know, like Ryan Mullen would have been over uh, training in New York at the same time as I was, and we would have had the same setup. You know, great. So, so you were able to gain from that. Uh, you know, from those other athletes as well as the coaches. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I have to say it was uh, a really, really brilliant setup. And then you had the riders who were already on the power cycling team, and I joined like a guy called like Mark Rowan, who would have been a sand, hand cyclist, and mm. um, he would be, you know, probably the most professional athlete I've ever met. You know, mm. um, and you had, uh, I suppose, the female tandem currently, um, Katie George and Levy and even Crystal, who are still racing as well. Um, I mean, Eve nationally is one of the strongest female riders nationally, has won obviously national time trial champs, etc. So, you know, it was a very, uh, a really good setup. But that, like, that's one thing really that just kind of brought home to me is that when you mentioned paracycling, like there's such a crossover between that and, and elite cycling, you know, because there's a various level category of disabilities that a lot of people wouldn't kind of realize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, I suppose one of the biggest names in paracycling is uh, Sarah Story, who a lot of people might have heard of, a British rider. And um, I mean, she she regularly competes in you know top female professional races. Um, obviously, she races at the what we call the C five, so the least disabled category. But um, on the current Irish squad, for example, there's a rider, a C four rider, which would be would say one category less disabled, if you want to call it, than me, Ronan Grimes. And I mean, he's a very strong A1 rider at the moment. So, you know, the in a way, before the national riding for me was what I did in from 2014 to 2016, it became what I did to get me in shape for paracycling, believe it yeah. or not. And then you, like, you also being a, a, a trained engineer, a civil engineer, would that be right? That's right. Um, I suppose you couldn't help but bring that, apply that to your cycling. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I suppose in one way I, I, I'm, very unanalytical when it comes to training. I, I like to kind of do my own thing when it comes to training. But um, in other ways, you know, I, I would really um, have a lot of interest in aerodynamics. Um, I suppose on the track, that's so important. You know, it, it really is. It's so important to, um, to spend a lot of time getting the aerodynamics right, getting your equipment right, the bike right, your position right, and looking at all the numbers to make sure that if you are aerodynamic, that you're also putting out the power as well. So you need to get the trade-off between those two. And I have to say it's, uh, for me as an engineer, but in general, it's, it's a really interesting area. Um, and I think the other area as well would have been the issue around, um, I suppose, strength and conditioning again. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to attend you well over those years. Tom Commons, who used to train the, do the strength and conditioning for Munster, would have done a lot of work with me on strength and conditioning. Um, and you well, and again, you know, just a whole attitude of trying to measure everything, trying to, uh, I suppose, you know, make sure that everything you're doing is to increase your performance. You know, it's something that as an engineer, I thought was, you know, it made sense to me to do it that way. Yeah. And like, have we any wind tunnels in Ireland or access to those kind of resources? No, we don't know. Uh, so actually, I've done some work with Cycling Ireland um, in this area as well and uh, we'd have used wind tunnels in um, Belgium and in the Netherlands and there are obviously wind tunnels in the UK as well but mm. yeah in Ireland we wouldn't have any wind tunnels which would be capable of doing that type of work. Yeah it must be great to have access to that to be able to see you know prior different different positions and just to see what what works and you know just to see the watts going up and down it must be yeah. fascinating from the point of view as an engineer because I mean cycling has become so science-based these days every watt is important every 
inch of of your body and your bike exposed to the wind. You kind of, I suppose, you have to look at every detail. And I remember one change we made in my position was simply in, instead of grabbing the, the skis, so the um, on the time trial bike, mm-hmm. um, with my full hand, I would grab them just with my baby finger on the velodrome. So it was quite unstable, but of course it's in the time trial race, so it's on my own. That ended up lowering my head. It, I was also able to keep out the power and it uh, would have saved me the equivalent of about, I think it was 10 or 15 watts at the time. Which if I was to do that, try and increase that in my, you know, functional threshold power would have been at that stage almost impossible because it would have been too big a leap. So, you know, it, it is worth definitely investing the time in that, um, particularly for those types of events. But that's massive. Like that's 10, 10 or 15 watts is massive when when you're probably just at your peak of fitness at yeah. that point. You know, you're trying to get those little margins and um it's yeah, no, you, I wouldn't at that stage. I wouldn't have been able to get that from training. You know, yeah, you know, it would have been, um, it wouldn't have been feasible. So, um, and and with that, once we saw that position, we actually went back to the gym, and I was doing specific work to enable me to hold a position, even when you're very fatigued towards the end of the race, so that you you keep the power out and don't move up your head or ruin the position. So, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work that goes into it. Once you find a position, if you don't just sit in it and then it's all dandy, you have to actually work to make sure that you're able to hold it as well. Do you have to work really to kind of reorientate the the um, the focus on on certain muscles and certain like how certain muscles fire? You know, when you change your body position, the way that your muscles um, operate it kind of changes too, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And particularly for I suppose uh, someone like me who has you know no lower legs to speak of. You know, you have to be uh, quite careful of that as well. And um, but yeah, like one one regret I suppose I would have had over my career was that if I had known the benefits of um, doing additional strength and conditioning, core work in particular, things like that, I would have been doing less cycling and more of that. I, you know, nowadays, um, I suppose if I was to go back racing like that full time, you know, I wouldn't do the amount of time I was doing on the bike. You know, I would do really? a lot more. And it was that period with Cycling Ireland where I, I really learned that, that, um, uh, you know, I for me, anyway, I had I had done enough time on the bike. You know, I didn't need to be flogging myself seven days a week. But there were other areas where I needed to actually improve, particularly in that area of strength and conditioning. And, and would that be kind of heavy heavyweight strength, or would that be more kind of um, kind of Pilates kind of stuff? You know, using your own body weight or what? What really worked for you? Um, like for the track, we had to do heavy stuff um, because you have to get out of the, the start gate and those first 10 pedal strokes just are, um, you know, you're in a big, massive gear. Uh, you're in a uh, 50, 11 or 51, 11. And you have I to actually have that gate. here on the, on the little screen. I was watching it. I was, I was watching, let um, me see it over my shoulder here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, you're just from a stand and start and grinding. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're really grinding and, and, and you have to get up for those events. The... The, the better you can get up to speed from that start, the better your time will be overall. It's that initial three quarters of a lap when you're out of the saddle that really determines what's going to happen in the rest of the race almost. And if you get yeah. the timing wrong when the gate opens by a fraction of a second, you've lost the race. It's You, you really have to um, get the timing right. The minute the gate opens to let you go, you have to go. Otherwise, uh, you, you'll just lose everything. So we would have worked a lot on, I suppose, leg power insofar as we could in with my condition. And then core muscles in particular, so that when you do put down the power, that you you tense the core muscles, you're not losing any power anywhere. And then done a good bit of upper body work as well. 
Yeah. So on that, and um, you'd use an upper body, would you? When you're like when you're going yeah. from a stand and start like that, you really have to engage your arms and your core, do you? Yeah, yeah. You you, you throw your whole body forward uh, in time when the gate opens. So you anticipate the gate opening and you throw your body forward, and so that when the gate opens, your momentum is pushing you out with your yeah. legs. And you, you do push forward, you drive forward with your arms there as well, you know. And um, I suppose for road cycling, a lot of that is is still relevant, but probably you don't need to do the big weights, big, huge weights. But you still, I firmly believe, you know, need to do, um, you need to challenge yourself when it comes to weights, even if you're a road cyclist, if you can, if you have the equipment, you know. Yeah. Uh, but even heavy bands and things will allow you to do that. It's actually a real challenge for people uh, during the pandemic, getting access to heavy weights. You know, like if you're if you're squatting big weights, you need a rack. Like, yeah. so people are trying to make the best of the weights to have at home. You know, so a lot of that large strength kind of training, people are trying to compensate in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, I, I suppose, uh, and there's ways you can, like maybe not fully, but definitely bands. Using a lot of bands as well as is, is a really good way. And I, I'd I'd still try and just for my own general fitness, I would do a lot of that. And but like I know myself when I'm. You know, if you have kids as well, you can use them as a as a, a bit of extra weight if you need to. Yeah. But, but definitely it is good. Like I know for road cyclists, the tendency in the past would have been just to do a lot of miles on the bike and not do anything else. But I think I, I think that's genuinely changing. A lot of road cyclists now know that they have to kind of mix it a bit, particularly in the off season. Yeah. And, and tell us about how your how your career paracycling then kind of evolved with um, the other world championships and going to the Paralympics uh, in, in Rio. Yeah, so I would have spent um, from 2014 to 2016 on the squad. In 2015, I would, uh, or after, sorry, 2014 there, um, I won the road racing time trial in uh, in America and um, then obviously went and did some World Cup events. And in the time trials, um, I basically, I didn't lose a time trial over my, my career in the paracycling until my very last one, actually. But... Um, I got a bronze medal then in the in the track were, um, world championships, and um, the two guys who beat me for gold and silver were the two guys who would constantly beat me for that in the next few years. So I took a lot of pleasure in beating them in the time trial on the road. 2015, I I won the time trial again, um, and I won the um, the scratch race, which is just a race I love on the track. It's it's like a demolition derby on the track. Uh, no brakes, as you know, a single speed uh, gear in the bike and riders flying up and down the track over and back. And uh, I absolutely... Um, How do you that, stop? That was one of... Yeah. How do you stop? Uh, you don't. Uh, if you Once you cross the finish line, you kind of push, uh, you know, you slow your pedaling rate. Yeah. But uh, it, it actually ta- ta- taught me a lot of bike skills. I'm a much better bike handler for having done those races. Really? Because you have to anticipate what other riders are going to do because you can't pull on the brakes, you know. Is it like a fixie kind of a... It's a yeah, yeah, it's a fixie. Yeah. You can't stop. If you stop pedaling, you'll be thrown off the bike. Yeah, it's mm. fixie. Um, and that was and a great race for me. How many accidents on the track? I had two big ones. One of them, uh, I think a, a ski on the Pursuit bike um, uh, just wasn't clamped tight enough. and I, It just dropped in the middle of a big effort and I came down. And the second one, I think a pedal came off and that one was was painful. I, I scraped one the entirety one side of my body, and because the track is wood, the pedal tore up splinters, yeah. which got lodged in me. And so that was fun picking those out. Um, that was a, a, a nasty crash. But um, but apart in racing and in, in in the scratch races, I never had um, 
uh, a crash. Um, and but it was a race that very much suited me. I really um, I love it. You know, I love watching it now, even on the road or on the TV, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I suppose um, the old racing with Galway Bay got you ready for that anyway. Elbow yeah, but I tell you, it is very different, and and it's something that you know people talk about cyclocross and mountain biking for the bike handling skills. But the, the scratch racing, that type of racing on the track as well is is absolutely brilliant for being able to handle a bike. It's, um, you know, I, I know it brought me on a lot. I'm, a, I'm actually a better bike handler now than I was in my 20s. Yeah. And uh, with, with Rio then, were you, you, you had some injuries, had you, heading into that? Yeah, I, I suppose I, I, de- I started developing a lot of back problems. I suppose partly probably because my, my muscles are continuously wasting. So things like walking, standing in my job would have, you know, um, caused me a lot of problems. And I, I've herniated, I had a number of herniated discs, so it was uh, extremely painful, the most painful thing I've, I've ever had, to be honest. But um, yeah, so 2016 was a, a struggle leading into Rio. I was still going well into time trials, but, um, you know, I was really struggling in training. On the track, I wasn't producing good times at all. Um, uh, and particularly the time trial position was hurting me, you know? Yeah. So, um when I got to Rio, uh, yeah, I was, I kind of, I, the training, the previous training camp we had done in um, Portugal in terms of the track training camp just before Rio didn't really go very well for me at all, you know, and I wasn't, um, I suppose I wasn't full of confidence. I knew on the road, I, I'd always be okay on the road race because I'm, you know, I'm strong enough. I knew that I'd always be okay there, but I was very worried about the time trial and uh, the pursuit in the for, ahead of Rio. Yeah. And how did you fare out? Uh, well, in the pursuit, like I ended up getting the bronze. Um, I wasn't happy with it. I, I, I think it was a cha- It would have been a challenge for me to get the, a gold or silver because the two guys who got them just it was it, for me. It was three kilometers, maybe a four kilometer race would have suited me better, and they were always better than me. I'd have been honest, but I, I felt I, I, I felt at my best. Um, I could have pushed them. The, the first track race I ever did actually was in 2014. I had never done one before, and I turned up at a competition as part of the paracycling squad, and. In the final of that particular event in the pursuit, I passed out the guy I was racing the final against. If I and a gun went because once you pass out the rider, the race is over. I didn't realize that I could have continued riding to set a time, so I just oh, yeah. eased up because I was finished. If I had continued riding, I probably would have been close to the world record at that time, but mm-hmm. I never got that back again. Um, and I think what we learned afterwards was probably I, I needed to train less on the track than I did. So in Rio, I came third in the pursuit. And I wasn't very happy with it, and I wasn't very happy with my performance. But um, luckily enough, the try the road time trial was the next event, and I did a lot of physio between the two events. And after about you know a kilometer out of the thirty kilometer time trial, I knew I was going to win it. And it might sound bad, or it might sound arrogant, but you know if you get me a bike and you have one of those days, I just got into the position, the legs were turning, and I said, yeah, this, if, unless I crash, I can't. You know the guys aren't going to beat me today. And I you need really that, don't you, as a cyclist? Like you need that yeah. to be at that level. You need that level of determination and will and belief. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I nearly mucked it up because the the, the Australian guy uh, who won the gold medal in the pursuit was my two minute man in the time trial. And on the, with about ten k to go, I was going to catch him for two minutes, which meant you know, as you know yourself, I was you know really hammering him. Yeah. And I wanted to pass him out. I was you know, desperate to pass him out, just so that he'd see me pass him out. I went around a U-turn on the course and I, I um, switched gears while around the bend, which of course was very stupid. So that when I jumped out of the bend, 
my chain fell off. So I had to get off the bike, my car, the guys had to run out from my car, fix the chain because it was kind of caught on the yeah. inside of the cassette. And uh, unfortunately, I just, I nearly caught him again before the line, but I didn't. And I was raging with myself. But anyway, I won the race. <laughs> it didn't matter in the end. I had a healthy margin of victory. But um, it's funny, when I crossed the line, I was furious uh, that I hadn't caught him. Mm. Um, which, you know, it, I suppose it was a bit stupid when you look back on it. Yeah. And um, the road the road race then, I suppose, yeah, that went, that went well for me. But unfortunately, there was five of us got away in a break. And in the sprint to the line, my chain came off. And I came fifth out of the five, so I had bad luck in that race, and I was I was pretty confident to doing a, a decent sprint that day. But anyway, that's unfortunately the way it went. But you probably underplayed the. I mean, you overcame serious pain and injury leading up to that, you know. To so when you're out, when you got out in the road, like you were just absolutely driven. Yeah, yeah, and uh, during the race, you'd have the the power meter on, but I I wouldn't I didn't even have the screen on. I wouldn't look at it. Mm. Um, but I knew, you know, I knew I was in 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 good form, and, and I had to do it because if if someone had said to me you go to Rio and not win a gold medal, I, I wouldn't have gone. Mm. You know, if they told me in advance, and I, it might sound bad because people say, well, what about the experience? But there's so much effort in getting there, and there's so much effort, and in training, you're missing family. I was juggling work and training and trips abroad, and um, what do you I mean suppose, sacrifice? Like, to give people an idea. You know, people think you go train, you go cycle on a bike is great, but like, what is that sacrifice? Like, I, I, um, some of it is, is fantastic. You know, that the kind of full time life, being able to train full time is fantastic. But I, I suppose what, one thing I didn't do was I didn't give up work for those few years. And so even when we we're over on training camps, etc., we'd be doing a track session of a number of hours. You'd have a couple of hours on the road bike on the same day. So a lot of training and gym work as well. And then I was trying to squeeze in, you know, staying on top of work. Obviously, I, I, I in 2015, um, my uh, first child was born and I missed her birth because I was flying home from a competition in Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, she was very young, obviously, at that time. So I put a lot of pressure on, I suppose, home as well. Mm-hmm. And um, like, it's it's definitely, you know, I, I have huge respect for for people who do commit over the years to it, you know. Um, particularly people, I suppose, who maybe have kids, etc. You know, it does make it a, a lot harder because, um, you know, I suppose people don't realise, but when you're, you know, doing the paracycling races, if you want to win the medals, you have to do it full time. You know, you can't, uh, you can't take any half measures. And getting back to, you know, what family life and getting back home, what was the kind of reason that, that you retired from competing at that level? Yeah, I, I kept going to 2017, but I had to have two procedures on my back in 2017. And um, uh, I suppose I'd, in my last race, I, I lost a time trial, which was the first one I'd ever lost. And I went on the next day to win the road race. I was so ra- mad with losing the time trial that I, I went off on my own in the road race and won it. But I, I felt I was really kind of, you know, I was taking the last, last dregs out of the well, to be honest. I was in constant pain and and with work and family, etc. as her second child was also uh, born, that I just felt it was the right time to, to to stop. And I had been, you know, competing for a long time internationally as well. So um, I felt it was the right time. And, and to be honest, it, I think it was the best decision, you know, mm-hmm. um, because for a couple of years, for 2008, 17 or 18 and 19, you know, I struggled a lot on the bike. And I think if I kept on racing, you know, could have done maybe, you know, uh, more damage. Yeah, yeah. And 
you know, like when you when you retired, I mean, that kind of love of cycling kind of continues. Um, I mean, how important is it going to keep keep in with the club, keep cycling, supporting the club, and you know, being involved in cycling? Yeah, for me, it's it's great. Like, I mean, we've we've such a great group around here, just around Galway in general, and in fact, around Connacht, I have to say in general, but around the city, it's 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 fantastic. What's been a great motivator as well, apart from obviously keeping in touch with the guys you would have been cycling for for a long time, is just the the new people who are coming on the scene in terms of racing and trying to, well, not catch them because that's almost impossible, but at least try and, you know, remain competitive with them. It kind of gives you a new spark and new motivation. Being modest now, you're dropping lads left, right and centre on the... Uh, well, I, I don't know about that, but, but you know, that's that's kind of what you need. You, you need those motivations. And, and I suppose there's a great social element to the training as well. Um, uh, you know, it's for me, it's, it would be hard to envisage a life without kind of... Uh, cycling you know it's um and and for me also it's just a way of getting around the city it's a way of it's not just about training it's just a the bike is this it's this great invention that you know for someone like me who can't walk very easily it, it gives me mobility around the place in a way that you know uh i suppose otherwise i mightn't have so yeah it's, it's something yeah i'll always be at and what, and what made you get back into um competing in the the, the local uh club leagues there last year yeah so actually as, as i said I, I struggled a lot 2018 19 i was really struggling on the bike and i didn't wasn't enjoying it a whole lot and um, then the lockdown came and i suppose during the lockdown i got a chance to kind of start training it a bit better you know i was working from home um i started kind of going back to scratch and training a little bit um and i found in march and april that i started to get you know really fit and the kind of you know the I just felt the legs were coming around again. So um, the guys were telling me that they had been doing this challenge, you know, the challenge league over the last couple of years. I would have always done the Galway Bay League as well, obviously, over the years, which was a, a fantastic training league as well. And um, so they were kind of pestering me to go. So I said I, I tried out, but I was expecting to be hockeyed altogether, you know. And um, so I, I started off with the, um, I suppose, the A3, A4 bunch. But um, I was kind of surprised that I was, you know, the first race or two I was going well and I was you know, able to get up the road and um, uh, stay up the road in one of the races with um, one of the other lads in the club. So then I, I, I was kind of, I was enjoying it. I suppose I was enjoying it because the legs were, were pretty good. Mm. And um, I started, you know, obviously I moved up to the A1, A2 bunch and I was again expecting to get trolley there. But then I found actually, you know, it's it's hard, but, you know, I can stay, I'm competitive. So, and it's it's fantastic. It's For me, it's it's close, you know, it's an hour away. The races are an hour, an hour and a bit. You, it's a Thursday evening, you know, you're, it's not It's not like traveling all over the country at weekends, you're not missing the, the family, etc. So um, I, I, I think they're, you know, fair play to the people who organize these leagues, both Galway Bay and also the Challenge Guys, because it's a lot of work, but it's a fantastic outlet, you know, it really is. Yeah, and it's great to be able to mix, you know, mix with lads from other clubs and, you know, people that you've raced with before or cycled with, it's, you know, there's a whole social element to it and, you know, hopefully that comes back again sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, I've met a lot of guys I hadn't seen in a good few years. And uh, um, yeah, it's, it's great. And it's just also great to kind of see the, new, the young, younger lads kind of coming on the scene, you know, see how well they're going, etc. And um, so, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's brilliant. And let's hope, let's hope May, May, June, we can get back to it again. Yeah. And like this, this pandemic has, you know, talking to anyone who owns a bike shop, like they're just... In flat out, you know, selling bikes and repairing bikes and, you know, 
there's been a huge uptake in cycling during the the pandemic. Has it really brought home to you and you've kids as well? I don't know today. Do you have them out cycling, or has it really brought home to you, or Shojik? And have you been impressed about how popular cycling has become during this pandemic? Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I think the first lockdown was was uh, very tough, obviously, but from the point of view of the roads being empty, it was great for kids and cycling. Um, and that's when my my daughter now is five, but she. Um, started kind of cycling during the first lockdown. And yesterday she cycled 20 kilometers, not in one go now, there was a few <laughs> little stops, but, uh, um, but you know, it's great. What I've noticed really is, well, for me, what's most important is to see kids cycling to school. Mm. You know, now there isn't enough of it. Uh, I, I wish there was a lot more and hopefully that will change. But even, you know, I do see it in local schools, um, a lot more kids cycling to school. And that's really where it starts because, um, you know, once they kind of, once it's ingrained in them as, habit as a mode of transport as a, a you know something for leisure purposes you know everything else follows from that you know i really think that and um you know i think it's been, I, I hope this boom continues for the for the bike industry because like ireland badly needs this you know badly needs um cities where people can cycle around where kids can be allowed to cycle around around alone etc you know it makes such a difference for a city when that can happen and like well in, i mean in, in ireland our um our cycling infrastructure is fairly woeful, isn't it? I mean, what with regard to greenways and with regard to um, you know cycle lanes, all this kind of stuff. I mean, what do you think should should be done? Well, yeah, I would be quite critical of our the state of our bike networks. I mean, I've, I'm lucky enough at work; I get to travel a bit to um, you know other countries. And in 2018, I was living in Poland for eight months, working over there in a city called Wrocław. And uh, even though uh, it there's a lot of improvements they would need, but compared to Ireland, that city was light years ahead in terms of bike infrastructure. I see it in the Netherlands. I just think we need a complete change. I mean, there's always people. We will always need cars. That's absolutely a given. That's you know, people will always need them for various reasons. But any city that I know of that has changed uh, the, the main modes of transport in the city themselves, the central areas of cities, from away from cars to walking and cycling, you know, they would never go back. They, they wouldn't. Yeah. And I know on, obviously we're on the West Coast, there's bad weather and the other things, but we just need to see change in how we see a city. And for me, the most important thing is that within 10 or 15 minutes of your house in most cities, you should be able to walk or cycle to almost any facility. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's really... And uh, for people with disabilities, and I hope you don't mind me going back there again, it just is so important because, um, you know, they wouldn't have the confidence. There's a person who lives near me who uses an electric wheelchair and that person, the footpaths are too narrow for them. So that person's going up and down Clybourne Road on the road with cars whizzing by in an electric wheelchair. And yeah. I just think in this day and age, that's just shocking, you know? And, uh, you know, that can't be comfortable for that person to get out and be mobile and active, et cetera. And um, let's hope over the next few years that things change. I, I think they will. I think they will have to, you know? Yeah. there. I mean, there are there are some moves being made, but um, there's a long way to go, isn't there, to, to go be anywhere like... Some of the some of the cities on the continent. Oh yeah, a, a, a huge, a very long way to go. You know, is is um, we really do. But you know, I know Seville, for example, in Spain is one city that has not overnight, but within a couple, within a couple of years, has transformed the city and uh, uh, from a city that was you know very congested to a city now that has just a huge amount of cycling facilities, and it's been a great success. So it can be done. You know, yes, yeah. no question. Well, hopefully the council will start with putting a, a bike lane along the promenade. So easy, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, 
but I think I think it has to happen. It will happen, you know. And I just hope it's sooner rather than later. Yeah, you know. I'm, because there's I'm an opportunity, isn't there, for like not just for competitive cycling and for mountain biking and gravel bike, but there's there's an opportunity to use the fact that people have really got into exercise and you know cycling and things like this, you know, to, to make something good out of a bad situation that we bring this momentum along and 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 it's not lost. Especially for the cycling clubs, you know that they have the opportunity to. It's a it's a resource that's already there to to bring those people along, encourage them cycling. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, you know, on the cycle um, school buses that have been organised in Galway, the one in Ochtacara, I know that a lot of the members of Galway Bay would have been some of the cyclists um, helping. I suppose that school bus and uh, organising it, etc. And I agree with you. I think like. You know, if you were to come out of this lockdown and, and the city was to go back to the way it was, and I'm talking about Galway, congested, etc., no real changes in how we move about the city, it would be a shame. And you do see in Dublin, they've made a lot of um, uh, changes to the to Dublin city. So, I mean, it would be a fantastic legacy to, to come out of this with real concrete short-term plans that would kind of change the way, you know, we move around the city. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to ask you one thing. I don't know if you want to be asked for this or not, but the uh, the velodrome that's in the National Development Plan has been put on review, but yet the uh, we have a white water rafting proposal that's still going ahead for uh, for Dublin. What do you think about that? I mean, okay, the white water rafting thing. I, I don't know enough about it. I think, in fairness to it, you know, there's a lot of disagreement. I think there's an element that. You know, part of the reason it's, it's, I suppose, maybe going ahead is because of broader social benefits it might bring to that community. I don't know. On the ben, on the velodrome, I mean, the mind boggles because cycling has been one of the most successful sports uh, in terms of international medals over the last number of years. Not just paracy- paracycling has been phenomenally successful. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the, uh, the cycling scene as well, if you look at the amount of Irish athletes that have won World Cups, look at Martin Irvine's gold, uh, gold and silver medals, World Championship medals. Um, Ryan Mullins, Sam Bennett, all these people came, Sam Bennett has European track medals. I mean, it's just, there has been a huge amount of um, people that have come through the, uh, I suppose, the, the track scene. And what Irish athletes are having to do are go abroad to train for the track. And there's no country that competes for medals that I'm aware of. Uh, like, if you look at the Danes, the English, New Zealand, Australia, I can list them all and they all train at home in their own velodromes. Yeah. yeah. And and sorry, if I could just say as well, the, the broader benefits that that would bring, you know, just for the public, I mean, the velodrome is a very safe, brilliant way to get kids into cycling as well, which is, it's used in other countries as that. So mm-hmm. for me, it's a project that should go ahead. Yeah, fantastic resource and great spectator sport too. It was like in Rio, our, our velodrome was absolutely jammers for our races. It was fantastic. And, and like, if you've ever watched... Um, you know, as I said, the scratch races, for example, or the tandems when, when you have the, the tandem riders flying around over a kilometre effort at 80 kilometres an hour, it's a, a sight to behold. So it's uh, really exciting. And one thing I'd love to do is go to a six-day event in, over in Belgium. I've never been to one, but it's, it's definitely on my bucket list. <laughs> yeah, they serve beer in them too. Well, that's part of the reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, just bringing you on there to like where we are now with pro cycling. I mean... It's, it's a pretty good time to be following pro cycling, like both as an Irish person watching Sam Bennett, uh, Ryan Mullins and all these guys. And as well, I mean, there's just so much going on. There's such competition, you know, in pro cycling. Like it is, like the race is so far this year, the one day classics, even 
uh, Paris-Nice and that have been brilliant. Like, you know, you don't know who's going to win from one day to the next. There's, there's no one being dominant. I mean, are you are you following the pro racing at the moment? Yeah, yeah, I was I was lucky enough today. It was raining, so I was inside with the kids and uh, I was watching Tirreno Adriatico where Van der Poel nearly got pipped at the line by Pogacar. But I mean, it's it's phenomenal, the, the, the change in scene and the pro scene. You know, guys like Pogacar, Bernal, obviously Van der Poel, Van Aert have come along you know, massively talented. And um, I suppose the way they race as well, you know, is, is just different. They, 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 they don't mind taking the races on, you know, which is phenomenal. And I, I think we're, we're, finally, we're starting to see Sam Bennett get the, the due, you know, kind of credit that he deserves. I mean, you know, yesterday in the break, he was up, up the road all day. He's won four World Tour races this season. The green jersey last year. I mean, Ireland doesn't produce that many athletes that are able to compete at that level in any sport internationally. And uh, it's it's uh, you know hopefully his season continues in this way because he's uh, the man to beat in the sprints. Yeah, and a real inspiration like for for young Irish cyclists. Absolutely, yeah, and a great character, you know, a great character as well. Like he's you know I suppose the way he praises his team, it, it almost seems as if he had to do nothing to win the race, you know, at the end and. Uh, I mean, it's it's a great thing to have. I mean, you know, and I think his teammates appreciate that as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, it is fantastic just to see, I mean, uh, someone, you know, like him just get to the very top of, of, of the sport. You know, it does, make, it does mean that we can produce those athletes. So what are you looking forward to, to to the year ahead? Is it more racing or cycling with the kids or...? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the latter. Uh, hopefully the racing scene, uh, hopefully our, the Challenge League, etc., gets up and running again. That'll be... Uh, fantastic! Um, I'm I'm really looking forward, obviously, obviously to the pro scene for the rest of the year. See how uh, Bennett and Dan Martin Roach, Ryan Mullen, Dunbar get on, and definitely really looking forward to Tokyo. Now, I, I I really want to see um, how the paracycling squad get on this year. There's been a few new athletes come into the scene, and, and um, the level is just constantly increasing there. So um, I'm just hoping that the you know the the, the Olympics and Paralymp- Paralympics can go ahead so that you know, we can see them in action. Fantastic. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, look at all. It's been a real pleasure talking to you now. And uh, thanks for giving us your time. Thanks very much, Richie. And uh, no problem at all.